Good morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. It's a great day, isn't it? Dads. I, I, I tweeted something this morning um, that I believe with all my heart. It feels strange to me to be celebrated as a dad or to, to be thanked or given a gift or something because uh, I feel like I've already been given the gift. Just the gift of being a father is more than enough for me. And um, I know you guys feel that same way. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you all for being here with us at South City. It is our privilege and joy that you're with us. We're so thankful that you're here today. Hey, listen, I've got a question for you this morning. How many um, movie fans do we have in the house? I mean, you're, you're like movies. You okay? All right. That's good. I'm, I'm a movie fan. But let me ask this question. How many, like, crazy movie fans do we have? Like, when Star Wars comes out, you're dressed up like Chewbacca. You know, your little girl's like Princess Leia. How, okay, we got one. Who, who else? Crazy. Mu- All right. Well, really, Paul? I didn't know that about you. Okay. I, I know you dress up on occasion, so... Uh, Listen, I, I love movies. I don't get that crazy with movies, but I, I love movies. Um, and if I'm being honest, my favorite are um, westerns. My dad's uh, kind of instilled that in me as a fan of westerns. I just, I love the idea of the Wild West and cowboys and Indians and guns and horse. I love horses. That whole thing, I just a, a, I'm a big fan of. I've done a, cow, I've done a cattle drive, actually, where I've ridden out in the Wild West and thousands of acreage you know, miles and miles, and that was amazing, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. But I have to make a confession. I love the idea of Westerns so much that there's a new, there's a new cartoon on Netflix called um, Spirit. <laughs> I have little girls. I, this is all I'm just saying. I have little girls, so we're looking for shows for them all the time. And now me and my little girl are hooked on this show called Spirit. It's about this little girl. She has a horse in the wild. Anyway, never mind. I, have, I, have, I love Westerns, all right? And the thing that's so interesting is we're going into our, our new series, what's really not that new, we did it last summer as well, called Acts, the story of the church. And the reason I was thinking about Westerns is because uh, what's so interesting is when I think about the book of Acts, I think about it almost like um, the Wild West. When you, think of, when you read through the book of Acts, you see all these crazy miracles, all this crazy stuff, and, and it's just wide open for the gospel to take place, to take root for lives to be changed, and we see it. And honestly, the book of Acts, I think, is my favorite book. There is no other book like it in the New Testament or really in Scripture. It is an amazing story, and it's a story of God's work through the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So this morning we get back into our series. If you weren't here last summer, and many of you were not, uh, I would encourage you to go check out those messages uh, in Acts, we, we study from uh, chapter 1 all the way through end of chapter 5 and just barely into chapter 6. And so it'll be good for you if, if you want to listen to those messages. You can hear them on our website. Uh, you can also find them uh, on a podcast through iTunes. Just look up South City Church and you'll see our podcast there. Um, but today we're going to kind of jump back into the book of Acts. And I thought it would be good for us if I just sort of did a little bit of a recap. Because, you know, a lot of us don't know necessarily all the details of Acts, and many of you weren't here last summer. So I thought it would be good for just kind of today, just kind of do a recap of where we've been and some of the highlights of what's happened and what God has done. Okay? Uh, Number one, the first thing I want you to to know is that there's some historical context that we need to see. Uh, The book of Acts was written by Luke, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, that guy, right? He wrote one of the Gospels, and as a a kind of a secondary part of the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. They're kind of meant to go together. In fact, they were written to the same person. 
person by the name of Theophilus. In uh, Luke 1, we see that, that he's writing to this person named Theophilus, and he uses the phrase, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, Theophilus is evidently some sort of Roman figure. He's a Roman official, maybe. Uh, we don't know. We don't really know that much about Theophilus. Uh, he could have been a disciple of Luke's. He could have been, some people think he was Paul's lawyer, representing Paul before the emperor. And so maybe he's giving context to all of Paul's life and ministry, and that's the reason he's written the book of Luke and the book of Acts, to kind of give context of all that God has been doing in the church and how Paul has been a part of that. Uh, either way, Theophilus actually means dear to God. The name Theophilus means dear to God. So whoever uh, loves the Lord, whoever cares about God in any way, uh, this is written to us, okay? And we're just thankful for Luke's account here in Luke and Acts. So let's, let's jump back if we can. I want to just give us kind of some little footnotes uh, of importance through these chapters, one through five. We're going to go pretty fast today. If you, if you read through the book of Acts, which let me just encourage you to do this. If you have the Bible app on your phone, awesome. If you don't, you should try and get it. It has it, it is revolutionized my quiet time, my reading of Scripture. It's changed my life uh, just because it's so accessible uh, in, my, in my car, on my phone. I can read it any time of the day. Um, but there are studies just through the book of Acts, Bible studies and ways that you can just read through the book of Acts. Let's read through this book together as we're going through this next 10 weeks of study in the book of Acts. Can we do that? This means yes, this means, okay. Stay with us, all right, and read through this with us because it'll be so informative to you. And, and listen, read it a few times. You would not believe the difference reading it once or two or three times will do to your understanding of what's happening in the book. It will really change your understanding from, oh, yeah, I see that verse and I've kind of heard that verse, to giving you this big picture of the heart of God for his church and in his church. It'll be, it'll be amazing for you. So I really encourage you to do that, if you will. Look through the book of Acts. Now, we're going to start in Acts 1. And, and if you've read this book at all, you know that Acts is a book of mission, right? You can't read the book of Acts and somebody say, well, what do you kind of think it's about? And go, well, I'm not sure. You know, no, you know that when you read through the, the whole of the book of Acts, it's a book of mission. God is on a mission here, and he's, he's using simple ordinary people like me and you. And this is the story of that mission. How are we going to do it, though? It sounds like a pretty daunting task. Let's take a look. Acts 1 and verse 8 says this. You will receive, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now I want to give you a little context to this moment. So Jesus, in the first chapter of Acts, he, this is, uh, Jesus has been with his disciples. He's had three years of ministry. He's been crucified. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. And now in his resurrected body, he's teaching the disciples. He's teaching them. He's sharing with them what the mission and heart of God is, right? And he's, we know, according to Matthew 28, that sort of in this same time frame, around this same audience, he gives the Great Commission, Right? To go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all the things that I've taught you to observe, teaching them, right? And he says, I'll be with you to the ends of the earth. So we know that the heart of Jesus for his church, for his disciples, is to take the mission, to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's his desire for us, okay? Uh, and then we see in Acts 1.8, this is how it's going to be done. 
We're just ordinary people. Those guys are just fishermen. How are we going to do this daunting task? And we see it's because the Holy Spirit is going to come on us and give us power to be witnesses. Not just in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. And not just that group of people. Some people say, well, you know, I think he was just speaking to that group of people. No. He's speaking to this group of people. You know why? Because he says he wants us to reach the world. What does it say at the end of that verse? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the age. Right? That, that's, that's us. That means this mission continues. Acts is a book of mission. When we look at chapter 1, I want to just highlight a few things as we go through these chapters. Number one, we see a resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is going to float into the clouds. And I love this moment that you kind of see the disciples standing around looking at each other, and they're watching Jesus float into the clouds. And then he's gone, and they're still looking in the clouds like, what just happened? Right? What's going on right now? Is he coming back? Is this just like an up and down thing? Or what are we doing? And the Bible says all of a sudden, Angels appear around them, and they're looking with them and going, what are you guys doing? What are you, let's go. He told you to go and take this mission and go. And by the way, he's coming back just as he's gone into heaven. He's going to come back. But now it's time to get to work. And so the disciples kind of go, oh, oh okay. Well, you know, and they start towards Jerusalem. Acts 1 tells us that the number of disciples is about 120 at this point, right? that are with each other. They're committed to each other. They're, they're in, right? They're on mission together, 120. Jesus says, just go and wait, which is, isn't that the hardest thing ever for anything? But this is what they, they've been told to do, go and wait. And so they go to the upper room and they're waiting. You know, Jewish custom is when you pray to stand and pray. But the Bible says that they're sitting. So I don't know, they're just chilling. They're just hanging out. You know, they're just they're spending time together. Maybe they're praying. Maybe they're just spending time. Maybe they're just overwhelmed with what they've seen and experienced, and they don't know what to do. But Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to give them power. What's that going to look like, right? Well, before we get to what that looks like in chapter 2, they decide to take care of a little church business. And they said, well, Jesus made 12 disciples or 12 uh, you know, 12 men to follow him. That's what we need. And so they know, they, they start making this conversation. Well, Judas has betrayed us and betrayed the Lord, so we need to replace Judas. What are we going to do? Give us some names, right? And they give some names, and they come down to two, and they feel like the Lord leads them to Matthias. And so Matthias takes Judas' place. Then in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a chapter full of some action, isn't it? It's, it's awesome. I love it. It's, it's a great chapter. Um, the Holy Spirit does exactly what Jesus said he would do. It sounds like a mighty rushing wind rushing through the city of Jerusalem to fill this house. All 120 people all of a sudden have tongues of fire on them. All of them are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all begin to speak with languages. It's not gibberish. They're speaking in tongues, but it's not gibberish. It's literally a language from the known world, languages they didn't know. Each language is a miracle of God. There's something amazing happening. What's interesting is, is that there are people from all over the known world that happen to be in Jerusalem right then for Pentecost. And so naturally, the sound of a mighty rushing wind goes, what was that? And they find their way to the house where something's going on. And then they begin to hear 
what the Bible says, the glory of God in their own language. They begin to hear it in their own language. Listen, don't tell me God's not a missional God, that he has a desire for his church to take the gospel of Jesus to every nation, tribe, and tongue, because the very first thing we see here at Pentecost is the gospel going forward in every language in the known world. Isn't that beautiful? That should speak something to us about mission. What's important to us? Are we taking the gospel and making it known around the world to every tribe, nation, and tongue? It's God's heart. It's his will. And we see it the very first thing in Pentecost. I love that. So Peter does something that's amazing. Now, Peter, he's going to be known for doing this quite a bit. And, and can I just speak to the dads for a second? Dads, I want to call you out today, me included. I want to challenge us to be like Peter. Let me... Let me remind you of what Peter did in Acts 2. This is what he did. The Holy Spirit has come in power. He set the stage amazingly. The languages are being spoken to people who only know that language. The glory of God is going forth. People are amazed at what's happening. Peter's taking note of what the Holy Spirit's done. The Holy Spirit has emboldened Peter to be who God wants him to be and speak the way God wants him to speak. And what does Peter do? looks around and he stands up and he steps into the opportune moment. He, he sees that the Holy Spirit has set the stage for something amazing and he stands up. He takes responsibility. He's active and he stands in that opportune moment and he says, this is not us. This power that's taking place right now, this thing that's going on, these languages, these miracles, this has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God Almighty. And I need to tell you about it. See, we've studied it. He's speaking to Jews. We've studied it all our lives. We know that we've been told about the Messiah in the Old Testament, but I'm telling you, he's come, and his name is Jesus. He's done the miracles that were prophesied. He was crucified in the same way that it was prophesied that he would die. He was he raised again in the same way that it was, it was foretold. We killed him. We killed the Messiah. And the Bible says the men there were cut to the heart. It was a serious, oh my gosh, what have we done? Peter steps into the opportune moment, and God does something amazing. 3,000 people choose to follow Christ. 3,000 people say, you know what, I believe that, and I want to go with you, I want to do that, I want to be known in that way with you. And somebody's over there going, 2,114, 2,115, okay, I've got his name, I know that guy, yeah. Somebody's keeping up, right? Somebody's taking note. In other words, it's important. It's not just something that happens. This is the church growing. Now the church has grown from 120 to 3,120. Right? And as a church leader, we keep notes of those kinds of things. Right? And somebody's keeping notes. Somebody's taking the number and keeping up with names and who's in, who's with us, who's doing this. 3,000 people baptized that day. And then at the end of chapter 2 is this beautiful expression of the church. It's this little snapshot. What can the church be? Well, let, me, let me tell you what the church can be. And you read it for yourself in Acts 2, 42 through 47. The church can be so beautiful that people are learning together what it means to be a follower of Christ. The church can be so beautiful that people are spending time in each other's homes eating meals and taking communion, Lord's Supper together. People are supporting each other. When somebody's down, they lift them up. When somebody's up, they, they celebrate with them. When somebody has a need, 
They meet it. It's this beautiful snapshot and expression of the church. And something interesting is said at the very end of that chapter. And it says, and the Lord added to their number daily. Let me tell you something. When your church looks like that, people will come. When your church loves like that, when, you're, when your people want to know Jesus that much, when they're drawn to knowing him, to serving him, to living for him, to being on mission together, people will come. And they won't just come. They'll come to know Jesus, right? It's not as important to us the number of people that come. It's our job to make disciples. It's not just about the people that will come. It's not just about a large attendance. We want to know that people are following Christ and serving him with their lives. And if we have that kind of church, people will come and they'll come to know him. Chapter 3, we see something beautiful. Out of this incredible community and the snapshot of this, these relationships, we see something happen really interesting. We see these old fishing buddies, right, Peter and John. They used to have a fishing business together in Galilee, and they're still fishing, but now it's for men. And they leave this community, and they're walking towards the temple, and they come up on the temple. And they see a man they would have known. You know, it's kind of like going to the grocery store you always go to, you know. There's always that cash register, oh, yeah, hey, Betty, or whatever. You know, you know people where in places that you go a lot. They would have seen this man. They would have known this man. They would have known that this man was, the Bible tells us he's over 40 and that he's been crippled his whole life. And he does what he does. Can I have some money? Would you give me something? And Peter leans down and he says this famous phrase that you're familiar with where he says, all right, he says, silver and gold, have I none, right? I don't have anything to give you in monetary resources, but what I do have, I give you. And he says, in the name of Jesus, take up your mat, rise up, and walk. You remember that? And after 40 years of not being able to use your legs, God gives him the miracle of balance and equilibrium and new legs. I think about Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan, you know. I got new legs. You remember that? He's, he jumps up and he starts jump. I, I can just, can you imagine? He starts jumping up and down. He starts running around, praising God, crying, hugging the disciples. He is so excited at what God's done for him. And it's beautiful. And it, listen, it causes a big stir in the temple. And the temple's a big place. Like the temple mount is like as big as our whole campus. It's huge. It's so, it causes such a stir that thousands of people come and want to see what's going on here. And what does Peter do? Peter follows the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he, he steps into an opportune moment. And he says, hey, 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 guys, um, this isn't about us. We can't heal people. We don't heal people. We don't have the power to heal people. That's not what we do. God does. And, and we've been taught. He says it's the same message. We've been taught about Messiah all of our lives, but I want you to know that he's come. He's come. And we crucified him. But God raised him. God uses this message and this opportune moment and the responsibility that Peter steps into to make it known. And that day, Scripture says, 5,000 men are saved. So now the, the church attendance record lady's going, I can't keep up with this, right? Now we're 8120. Church has grown in a few weeks probably to 20,000, because again, that's probably just men in, in those numbers. 
not including women and children and families. This is a huge amount, and God is doing something unbelievable. But what we see happen here at the uh, end of three and end of four is that now they're in trouble. (laughs) The people who are the experts of the church, the experts of the temple, they're the ones who are supposed to speak in the temple. They're the ones that have the right to speak. They have the the credentials and the authority and and the power. And now their power is being threatened. And so they come and they, they, they get Peter and John, and they take them before the council, right? And they're being, this is kind of the first persecution of the church. This new church has been such a beautiful example, and now all of a sudden it's beginning to change to people not liking what they're doing. And they say to Peter and John, where did you get this power? What's going on here? (laughs) How does this happen? And Peter says, again, he speaks up. He stands up. He's active. He says, this isn't us. We don't do that. We didn't make this happen. This is God that's done this. He's been the one to give us the ability to, to heal this man. It's his power. And then Peter speaks with boldness about how Messiah, the Messiah has been crucified. And that this whole, what I love about this whole picture, if you can just go there with me in your mind, this council of elders, very esteemed in charge, full of power, looking at Peter and, and John, these fishermen, ordinary common men, speaking with such authority and power, but next to them is the crippled beggar, but he's not crippled anymore. He's standing next to them, and if that's me, I can't stand still, right? I'm playing around, so this is what it's like to go up and down and kick and go on my toe. This is crazy. Do you know what I mean? He can't stand still. He's moving around. He's excited. So just imagine the council sitting there accusing Peter and John, but yet in their peripheral vision, this guy, he's antsy, and he wants to run. And this is what's so tragic to me. You see, God has done a miracle that cannot be denied, and it's standing in front of their face, and yet they don't want to believe. It's like they're, they're holding their hands like this, like, we're not going to pay attention to this over here. Tell us what, the, you know. What? You mean God could do something so miraculous that all of these men, they knew this guy was. He'd been there for years, his whole life, begging. And now he wasn't. Now he's standing with a smile on his face. And yet, sometimes, and even today, Sometimes God moves in such a powerful and amazing, miraculous ways, and people won't see it. And it breaks my heart. It can be right in front of their face. It can be unbelievable, and they won't pay attention to it. They'll just continue down the narrative that is important to them. This is what's important to me of how it should be done and what should be done. I can't pay attention to the miracle that God has shown us and done in us. God forbid that we don't see his work and see him active in our lives and in our church. They tell Peter and John, quit speaking about Jesus. You go go away, you quit speaking about Jesus. And Peter says, how can I not speak about Jesus? I've got to speak what I've heard and what I've seen. He was buried and raised again. How can I not speak of that? He's given us his heart and mission for the world. 
In other words, he's saying, guys, do what you have to do. This is what I have to do. Right? This is me. I'm not going to change my story. And somehow they release him. And this is beautiful. At the end of chapter 4, they release Peter and John. And where do they go? They go back to the community they came from. There's these two little sections of Scripture in the end of Acts 2 and at the end of Acts 4. Both of them show this little snapshot of the beauty of the church. Both of them are just a little description of how amazing the church can be. And they go back to this community. And what's so cool is the community is praying. And what I love about this is we're seeing that mission is not about a couple of people who go and do something. Mission is the church of Jesus. The church should be so connected in the mission of God that they're praying for those who have been sent. That they are engaged with those who have been sent. Peter and John come back. And I want us to take a look at this prayer that the church prays. They come back into this church setting in Acts 4.29 and say this. And the, and the people pray this prayer, speaking of the, of the council. They say, now, Lord, look upon their threats. In other words, see what they're doing. Be aware of this persecution, God. But then they say, and grant to your servants, all of them, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So after they prayed this prayer and after the whole community has been connected to the story and the mission of what's been going on and listening to Peter and John and what happened, they pray this prayer, God, See the persecution, right? See what's going on. Help us. Protect us. But then they say, help us to have boldness to speak your word. And then they say, continue to do miracles. Continue to go before us in amazing, miraculous ways and give us the boldness to speak your word. It's this, it's this amazing prayer, amazing moment in the church and, of course, the chapter ends with that beautiful description of their closeness. We're introduced to somebody at the end of the chapter, chapter 4, amazing guy, named Barnabas. He's a Greek. And uh, what Luke does here is he's going to contrast Luke as a giver to the church and somebody else who's a giver to the church. And so in this beautiful community, we're seeing people giving and loving and caring and serving. And all of a sudden, Luke lifts up Barnabas as an example. He says, hey, there's this guy by the name of Barnabas. He sold some property. He brought the money of that property to the church. He lays it before the, the uh, uh, apostles. And basically what he's saying is he had a pure heart. He wanted to see the mission of God move forward, and so he did whatever he could to continue that mission, continue to believe in that mission. Then we get into chapter 5, and we see it contrasted against somebody else who gave. Right? You remember the names Ananias and Sapphira. This is a couple who's also sold some land, and they want to bring some money from the sale of that land to the church. The problem is they lie. They hold back some of that money and lie to the church about it. And they lie, what's worse, they lie to God about it. So what's happening? They're trying to seem more spiritual than they really are. They're not being authentic. They're trying to be impressive. 
Look how much we've brought when really what they're saying to God is, we don't trust you. We're going to hold on to something ourselves because we don't trust you. And I'm telling you, at the end of chapter 4, this beautiful snapshot of the church all of a sudden changes. (laughs) And the story changes to a very serious tone, one of judgment, one of the Lord cleansing the church. And what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They're struck down dead. Like a very, very serious uh, consequence of this, of this action that they've done. It's like the Lord is trying to send a clear message about, how, about authenticity, about hypocrisy. It's a sad moment. And yet somehow God uses it to purify his church and to remind us of what matters most. End of chapter 4, miracles continue to happen. <laughs> They're healing people all over cities and towns. Uh, In fact, some people are even bringing their sick out just so the shadow of the apostles might fall over the sick person and maybe heal them. Isn't that crazy? And it says that everyone was healed. All these towns, all these, these cities, everyone was healed. Can you imagine the ruckus? Can you imagine the news? Can you imagine the gossip going on about what is taking place It would have been insane. And so what happens? They get arrested. They're thrown into prison. The apostles are thrown into prison. While they're in prison, an angel comes to them and frees them. Just another reminder that God's in control, right? If it was up to them, they'd they'd be sitting in that prison, not going anywhere. But it's not. God is in control of his mission. And so his angel shows up and goes, come on, guys. Come on. And he tells the apostles, go back to the temple and continue to preach the word of God. So what do they do? They go right back to the temple to preach the word of God. The council says, hey, let's go to the prison, see if we can talk to these guys. They get to the prison, we're the apostles, <laughs> which is a little embarrassing. The guards are even going, what? What happened? I have no idea. Very embarrassing. And somebody comes to them and says, hey, they're actually in, remember the place you told them not to go to preach? Remember that? That's where they are. They went back there. Oh, boy. And so it says that they go to the temple to to retrieve the apostles. And when they do, they have to do so sort of sheepishly. In other words, like, hey, guys, come with us. Because they were afraid if they captured them in a brutal way, that they would be attacked by the people. That's how much influence God had given to the apostles because of their healing and because of the power of the Spirit with them. So they bring them back. Same exact space. Same exact questions. Same exact uh, anger. Peter steps into the opportune moment again. And he says something a little different. He, he, he ratchets it up a little bit. He takes the accusation from Messiah has been crucified. And he uses a very specific word in the Greek that says, You murdered the Messiah. You did it. And now the scribes, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're, they're stepping back and they're going, what? What? They're so angry. The scripture says in chapter 5, they're ready to kill the apostles. They want them dead. And one of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, stands up and says, hang on, guys, hang on. We've had different people try different things before. We've had different factions and different people that say they're Messiah and say that this is the right one or whatever, and they've all fallen by the wayside. And he says, if this is of God, there's nothing we can do about it, and if it's not, it'll go away. So let's just, let's just quiet down and not make a big deal out of this. How about that? And so what they choose to do is to beat the apostles and set them free. 
Now, have you ever walked something, walked through something in your life? I know you have. That's difficult. It's hard to understand. It's hard to walk through. It's hard to, to live through. And, and something's going on, and you just get angry. You've got a bad attitude. You know what I'm talking about? Am I just talking about myself right now? Sometimes I get so frustrated, and I just get angry. I'm just in a mad, bad mood, right? And I'm blown away at what we see here at the end of chapter 5 from these men who've just been beaten for the cause of Christ. This is what their attitude is. Acts 5, 41 says this. Then they left the presence of the council, look here, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Does that speak anything to you about their love of Jesus? About their faith in who he really is? Does it speak anything to you about when things don't go your way and how sometimes we act? Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me when I act that way. Help me to, to rejoice every day, whether it be persecution or struggle or financial issues or whatever I'm walking through. God, give me a heart of joy to rejoice that you're enough, that you love me, that you are with me, and it is an honor, God, to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a convicting little story about how they walk away from the council. And then lastly, we, we just dipped our toe into chapter 6 a little bit. It was our last message before we left the series last summer. Chapter 6, you might remember, uh, of course we couldn't read all these for sake of time. I just wanted to touch in on some of the stories, but... You might remember that the story in chapter 6 was about this group called the Hellenists. It was a Greek section of uh, believers. They were probably all connected to one synagogue, more of a Greek synagogue where their language was common and their recipes and food and their cultures were very similar. They're all kind of there together. Something was happening in the church, this burgeoning church. And it wasn't a good thing. They started getting really frustrated. They started getting really angry because their widows were being overlooked in the food distribution. They're going, what's going on? It felt, you know what it felt like? It felt like prejudice. We're, we can't be loved. We're not good enough to receive the food. You're going to look over us. Does that sound like that's a current problem in the church? Yeah. Where people can't get along. And so they raise this flag. Hey, something's wrong here. This could have been a major issue in the church. And it wasn't. You know why? God gave wisdom to the apostles. Incredible wisdom. And so the apostles say, hey, you know what we're going to do? Take up some names. And you put forward seven names of great leaders of great reputation who can lead well and serve well and honor Christ. Would you do that? And so the Hellenists were like, well, yeah, I guess we can do that. So they put forward seven names. And they say, we want them to be in charge of the distribution. And that didn't just mean food. In some cases, it meant money. In some cases, it meant uh, relationally. So this isn't just being a waiter. This is actually, we're giving leadership to a group of people. We're trusting. This is, be this is brilliant and beautiful that the church was beginning to, to work this way. And I want us to take a look at the seven godly men that they put forward because 
really what Luke is doing here is he's giving us an introduction to the stories of these men. Look with me, Acts 6, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. What the disciples said, what the apostles said about putting them forward in this plan pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. What I love about this is we just did this a couple of weeks ago, right? We just brought our new elders in front of you, and we laid hands on them, and we prayed over them, and we commissioned them to help lead our church. This is where we get that from, right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful expression of the church together. And the last thing that happened last summer, the last verse of the text that we were looking at, um, is something I want to kind of bring to our attention. See, Luke is, is an amazing person. We know uh, he's not just a doctor. In a way, he's a historian. But it's not just history that Luke wants to preserve. Luke is writing the book of Acts for a reason. He want, he, there's an intent behind how he's writing the book of Acts. And we get little hints of that intent all throughout the book. And I want to just bring them up to you very quickly, okay? Look with me. Acts 6, verse 7, and see how this is sort of a closing statement of, of a section of, of the book of Acts. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Does that sound like a summary statement to you? It's because it is. See, there's, there's six sections throughout the book of Acts, and they all end with a summary statement. And they all give us a little hint, a little clue to what, what's Luke trying to show us in writing this book. So I want to highlight those verses very quickly, can we? Five other ones. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So let me show you what's going on. Acts 1 to Acts 6, verse 7. That's one section. Acts 6, verse 8, all the way to Acts 9, 31. It's the second section. The next section, 932 to 1224, and it ends with this one. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Then Acts 1225 to 164, or to 165, and it ended with this one. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in their numbers daily. And then that section goes to Acts 1920. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Each of these sections ending with these summary statements all the way to the end of the book. Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. <laughs> Verse 30, speaking of Paul, he says, And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that ends the book. This is, this is my point. There are sections throughout the book of Acts, six of them. They all end with these summary statements. What do they show us about Luke's intent for writing this book? You see, sometimes we think Luke is about showing us some specifics about people. But if you really start looking at the stories of the people, he, he talks about Peter for a little bit, but not a whole lot. Peter's a pretty big character. He talks about Paul for a little bit, but doesn't really go into Paul's life. It's not, these are not biographical of people. The main character of the book of Acts are not people. It's the Holy Spirit of God. 
And the main intent Luke wants to get across through these sections and these summary statements is this. Look what the Holy Spirit, the main character, is doing. He is establishing. He is establishing the church and expanding the the kingdom of God, the mission of God through Jerusalem, through Judea, Sumeria, through the ends of the world. He's showing that the mission is going forth and the one common denominator in all of these stories and all of these sections is the Holy Spirit's activity. He is the main character. Stories about God. How much he loves that he would advance the church through simple people like us. First six chapters have shown us that the disciples are just being obedient. Remember Jesus in the end of Matthew said, go and make disciples. And then Acts is what? Them going and making disciples and doing what God's called them to do. Baptizing people. Believers coming to know Jesus. Uh, miracles are happening. We see the beauty of life together in this mystery called the church. All these cultures and races and languages coming together to be this beautiful mystery of the church. We see opposition to the gospel, persecution, and somehow in God's sovereignty, he uses that persecution to spread and scatter the gospel around the world. We see how everything in this story, especially these six chapters, is very Jewish in nature, right? They're meeting at the temple. They're meeting in synagogues. Uh, priests are coming to know the Lord. It's very Jewish in, in nature. And we'll see how as time goes throughout the rest of Acts, it moves away from the Jewish faith to the Christian faith. And, of course, it ends this section with the Hellenist. This first section, this uh, 1 through 6 or 1 through 5 and the beginning of 6, literally shows the life of the church and the expansion of the gospel in Jerusalem. That's what it's about. So next week, as we close, we're going to jump back in to the book of Acts in Acts 6. And we're going to tell the story of Stephen, the man that was just introduced as one of the seven put forward. But let me tell you something. Stephen's not just a waiter. (laughs) He is not just a waiter. Stephen is a bold man, a man willing to step into an opportune moment. But not for him and He's even willing to pay a price. Stephen's willing to give his life so that the gospel will go forward. He preached one good message, (laughs) and it's a doozy. It's an amazing message that Stephen preaches. We're going to study it next week, and then we see Stephen is stoned for what he says. Guys, can I just ask you something as we close? Fathers, men, everyone for that matter. When you leave here and you go to the restaurant or you spend time with your family or you go back to work, the Holy Spirit is going to go before you. He is always working, Scripture says. The question is, are you going to acknowledge that work and are you going to step into an opportune moment to make a difference in somebody's life? Because you stepping up to take the opportunity to make Jesus known when the Spirit's moving. He's done the groundwork, trust me. It's his work. Jesus said, I'll build my church, right? And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It's his church. But when the Spirit is moving, will you recognize it? Number one, will you even recognize it? But if you do, will you then step up into an opportune moment and say, hey, you know what? This is not about me. It's not about what's happened here. I think God's given us an opportunity to know him more. Because 
if we'll be faithful to follow the spirit of the living God in those moments where the Holy Spirit begins to move, it could change not just us. It could change your family. It could change your community. It could change your city. It could change your work. It could change the world. In every place we see in Acts, the Holy Spirit moving in every event and in every life, someone steps into that opportune moment and the atmosphere changes. Miracles happen. And God uses simple, common, ordinary people just like me and you for his work and for his glory. Will you acknowledge the Spirit's work? And will you have the guts? Fathers, let's not be passive. Men, Let's not be passive. Let's be men of God. Not consumed with ourselves, our careers, or being known in some way other than being known as someone who wants to serve Jesus with all of our hearts, with all of our lives. It's all that matters. You can't take anything with you. So let's live for him. And let's model that life to these beautiful gifts God has given us in our children. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you for this time to be with our family. God, thank you for the guests that are with us. We're so excited that they're here with us at South City. God, we know that we are an imperfect church. If they're looking for a perfect church, this is the wrong one because we we're the farthest thing from it. We make mistakes. We say things sometimes that, that aren't right. We do sometimes things that, that we shouldn't have done. Lord, we, we make mistakes because we're human, fallen, broken people who are rescued by the grace and mercy of Jesus, our only hope is in him. So Lord, would you take uh, this message, this overview of what your spirit is doing in the book of Acts and show us, remind us that every time your spirit moved, we have a choice to make. Will we choose to follow your spirit's moving? Will we say something? Will we stand up? Will we lead? Will we step into an opportune moment? that you can do something amazing in, not because of what we said or who we are, but because you use broken, common, ordinary men and women for your glory. God, we love you. We celebrate what you're doing here at our church. We submit to you. Would you lead us? Would you direct us? Would you draw people here, Lord, that you are calling to be a part of this family? And Father, right now, would you help us to speak with you to respond to you. That is what worship is when we respond to your invitation. So Lord, whatever's going on in the hearts of the folks that are in this room, may we all respond to you in a way that would honor you and serve you because we love you for all that you've done for us. We say it in the name of Jesus.